This episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Good evening and welcome to the AUA's Advances in ADT Part 2, A Guide to Urologists. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so that we can continuously improve our programs. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this internet live activity for a maximum of 1.0 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Course handouts from the presentation have been made available to you. Please visit AUA University to access the handouts. Evaluations are very important to us. Course evaluations and CME credit will be administered electronically on AUA University immediately following the course. As we at the AUA continue to develop virtual education that meets your needs, we especially welcome your feedback regarding both the content and format following the program. Please stay tuned for a keyword that will be provided during the webinar. The keyword is used to verify your participation. You will need to use this keyword to access the course evaluation, CME credit claim, and certificate. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationship with any commercial interest. Please visit the AUA University to view faculty and education council disclosures. Coding advice given during presentations are the opinion of the presenters and may not have been vetted through the AUA for accuracy. Please verify accuracy prior to reporting on medical claims. The AUA would like to thank Myovant Sciences LTD and Pfizer Inc. for providing independent educational grants in support of this live virtual course. Finally, I'd like to introduce and extend a special thank you to our moder moderator and course director, Dr. Kristen Scarpato. We thank her for her time, talent, and expertise in developing this program. Dr. Kristen Scarpato is an associate professor at Vanderbilt University, University Medical Center, Department of Urology. She is the residency program director and vice chair of education within the department. She treats GU malignancies with a focus on bladder and prostate cancer. She is the site PI at VUMC for a trial examining patient-centered outcomes in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, as well as for several trials evaluating the utility of specific biomarkers in the diagnosis and management of bladder cancer. She has a strong interest in patient and resident education and serves on the Society of Urologic Oncology Education Committee, Young Urologic Oncologist Executive Committee, AUA Core Curriculum Online Content Team, Urology Practice Editorial Committee, and the Urology Care Foundation Bladder Health Committee. I will now turn the activity over to Dr. Scarpato to begin our knowledge assessment. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Here's our activity goal. This is based on a documented need from the AUA Advanced Prostate Cancer Global Needs Assessment. We've created Advances in ADT Part 2, a guide for urologists. And this is part of a series of educational offerings to update urologists on the latest advancements in androgen deprivation therapy and prostate cancer treatment. These are our learning objectives. At the conclusion of the activity, participants will be able to recognize and characterize the different disease states for advanced prostate cancer, 
discuss the role of a multidisciplinary shared team approach for the diagnosis and management of advanced prostate cancer, facilitate discussions with patients and caregivers regarding treatment intensification, identify the role of combination therapy with ADT and additional system systemic therapy to yield optimal survival outcomes for patients with metastatic prostate cancer, and finally differentiate the mechanisms of action and side effects when ADT is delivered via the various mechanisms, GNRH agonists versus antagonists. It is my extreme pleasure to welcome back my two co-hosts, co-panelists tonight. We have Meredith Donahue and Dr. Alicia Morgans, who were also part of um, Advances in ADT Part 1. So coming back for round two, uh, Dr. Alicia Morgans, she is well known for her expertise in advanced prostate cancer and all of prostate cancer, actually, actually I would say. She's a GU medical oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And then we have Meredith Donahue, who is a nurse practitioner who has been here at Vanderbilt for um, many years now, actually. She's the fellowship director for the uh, nurse practitioner program here, and she helps run our advanced prostate cancer clinic together with Dr. Kelvin Moses. So Dr. Morgans and um, Meredith, welcome so much. Great to have you. Thank you. All right, so we are going to get started with segment one. Um, just regarding what is advanced prostate cancer, we hear that term thrown around so much, and there are um, many different disease states that encompass advanced prostate cancer. So what exactly is the definition? Is that term a catch-all? And which patients does this term or, um, refer to? So. We'll get started. Meredith, if you could answer that question. Yeah, thanks. So this is this is definitely a catch-all phrase um, or term. We have quite a few different disease states within the advanced prostate cancer umbrella. Um, just to highlight these biochemical recurrence. Um, so that is a PSA recurrence after we've exhausted uh, local therapy options without evidence of metastatic disease. And then we get into the metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. And we like to break that down into high volume, high risk and de novo metastatic disease. And it's important to break those down when you're, you're choosing therapy options and going through the options with your patients. Um, and then we of course have M0 castration resistant prostate cancer or non-metastatic castration resistant, and then M1 CRPC or metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer. Great, yeah, and you know, there's a, an advanced prostate cancer guideline put forth by um, the AUA and SUO, very much a multidisciplinary collaborative guideline that was recently updated and does define these four specific disease states that are really important, not that patients fit into boxes like this, but it can be helpful to understand um, where to go with management of these patients having this, um, the, this categorization to sort of guide us. 
Dr. Morgans, can you just talk about the differences and why it's important for us to categorize patients who are de novo versus those who have progressed through prior treatment with metastatic disease? And then secondarily, kind of what the difference is between high volume and low volume and, and why that matters. Absolutely. So I would really echo what you said just a moment ago, though, in order to really understand how to treat patients with prostate cancer, we need these frameworks to, to essentially put patients into buckets, just like you said, because mm -hmm. It is within those buckets that we do our clinical trials and that we then understand what treatments can be helpful and not. Um, you know, de novo metastatic status is really the patient walks in the door, first time being evaluated for or diagnosed with prostate cancer and has disease that has spread outside of the prostate um, and traditionally outside of the pelvic lymph nodes because that would be a locally advanced spread. So something that's spread outside of the pelvis and de novo status really, again, means from the diagnosis, this patient is metastatic at the get-go. Um, that really portends a patient population that's going to have a more aggressive disease biology and uh, really a poorer prognosis. And so there have been studies that have been specifically designed around enriching for that population to understand how treatments may work, including things like the PEACE-1 trial, which included patients with, who had de novo metastatic disease. And I, be, I believe latitude was the same way, de novo metastatic disease. So the, the reason that this is important is because that's selecting a, an aggressive disease biology. And we often will, as we talk about intensification of therapy later, think about using chemotherapy in that population um, as, as, a, as another tool in our toolbox to, to attack that more aggressive disease biology. Recurrent disease in many cases is going to be, be more of a smoldering pattern. It can still be high volume or have a, a large amount of metastatic disease, and we can talk about volume later, but it's usually not as rapidly progressive as de novo metastatic disease. These are generalizations. It is always possible for recurrent disease to also be highly, highly aggressive, but it is less common. Um, and so I think these are the things that we really are thinking about as we're trying to choose again between more aggressive intensified therapies um, and those that may be less, uh, less aggressive and maybe don't include the chemotherapy component. Great. Thank you. That's super helpful. Um, and as you said before, you know, these come from, from studies that we're all pretty well versed in, but high volume metastatic disease is defined as the presence of visceral metastases and or greater than or equal to four bone metastases with at least one outside of the vertebral column and pelvis. So important definition. So let's now kind of move on to combination therapy and treatment intensification. It is well established that prostate cancer is very much a hormonally active, hormonally responsive disease. We know this going back to the great work by Charles Huggins and the Nobel Prize um, earned for, for kind of understanding and classifying this. But I feel like before we get into treatment intensification, it's important to kind of understand what ADT is, why we use it, and um, understand kind of the different ways to achieve um, the end goal of, of ADT. So Meredith, if you could just talk about the backbone of therapy and um, how we can achieve castration in, in our patients. Sure. Um, I think that's kind of the, the big takeaway from this slide is that ADT is the backbone of our treatment in men with advanced prostate cancer um, and working with them and 
finding the best way to do that for them. You know, we are at a point now where we have multiple options to, to guide patients through which option would be the best for them, whether that is surgical castration or med medical castration, um, surgical, we're doing a bilateral orchiectomy, and then medical castration with either GNRH agonists or antagonists, which we'll talk more about those. Yeah, I do think it's, I, th I think it's important to note also, kind of before we really get into, um, get into the intensification that while ADT is the backbone of our treatment, we're not using it as monotherapy, usually. There's exceptions to every rule, but right now our, the recommendation is ADT should not be used as monotherapy in men with advanced prostate cancer. Great. And if you all have one takeaway from, from tonight, I, I certainly want that to be um, at the top of the list of important takeaways. And we'll talk about scenarios where that might be appropriate for your patients. But um, generally, to achieve that goal of castration for our prostate cancer patients, which we know is so important to uh, outcomes in this patient population, it's either surgical castration or this medical castration with LHRH agonists or LHRH antagonists. Dr. Morgans, can you just tell us a little bit about the two of them and the differences between these classifications of drugs? Sure, and this table I think really helps us to kind of keep things distinct here. We have, of course, antagonists, which cause a rapid reduction in testosterone by acting as a block on the GnRH receptor and the pituitary gland. And these, these drugs really achieve a castrate level of testosterone very quickly, as you can see here, within about 96 hours. And because it's an antagonist, there's no stimulation of that receptor. There's no increase of FSH or LH. And so there's not a flare of testosterone from the testes. So it's really rapid reduction and reduction without flare. Um, importantly, I would say these two approaches to ADT are very similarly efficacious. So there's no difference in terms of how well they work. And this PSA failure rate is not one that we can compare statistically. These drugs, at least in prospective trials, like the HERO trial seem to pretty similarly cause castration. There's no difference in time to development of castration resistance, for example, within that trial. So we know that they work similarly well. Importantly, antagonists are given as an oral relagolix or as a one-month depot injection, degorelix. Um, the degorelix injection does have um, a higher reported local injection reaction rate. Um, it's given in the stomach and patients can find that sometimes a little more uncomfortable, especially if it's under the belt line or the belt buckle. Um, so just something to be aware of and to be uh, cautious about. And if we wanna shift over onto the right side for the agonist, we can see that they achieve that castrate level of testosterone a little bit less rapidly because there's initial surge, initial flare of testosterone before we see that suppression happening. Again, equally efficacious and relatively well-tolerated. These are all given by injection, one month, three months, four months, or six months. And there's even, I think, a depot that you can give for a year. So lots of options here. And the final comment I'll make, and you can see on this slide, is that there are cardiovascular complications potentially associated with androgen deprivation therapy in general. And it does appear that antagonists may have a little bit of a better safety profile when it comes to cardiovascular risk than agonists. This was assessed in multiple phase two trials as well as the phase three HERO trial. Um, and I think there are ongoing studies still trying to sort out the details here. Um, but but that's, that's another thing that I often will think about when, when choosing between these agents. Great. Exciting times for GNRH 
uh, antagonist here, I'll say. So now getting to the intensification that I um, started off this segment with. So as Meredith said, no longer ADT monotherapy in the management of our prostate cancer patients. There are so many different agents available now and utilized in each of these four disease states. So Meredith, could you talk us through some of that? Sure. I will. Um, I'll start with the biochemical recurrence. So no evidence of metastatic disease on imaging. Um, options for, for these men include observation, clinical clinical trial, um, and, and ADT. But when we do ADT, um, we should be considering intermittent hormone therapy. This is a, a conversation between you and your patients and their comfort level, your comfort level, we, I counsel patients that we're not just looking at what the PSA is, but maybe just as importantly, if not more importantly, we're looking at the PSA velocity. Um, we like to quantify that by the PSA doubling time. So when that doubling time starts to get more rapid, that's where we're talking about maybe adding in intermittent hormone therapy. Um, with intermittent ADT, I typically will prepare the patient for a full year of therapy. And then when we get to that full year and their PSA is undetectable, then we can talk about coming off of it and monitoring their PSA and testosterone. Um, for the men with the metastatic disease and castration resistant disease, we're talking about ADT um, plus a novel hormone agent. So that includes enzalutamide, darolutamide, apalutamide, and abiraterone plus prednisone. And I will break those down a little bit more, but as we keep stating that it's no longer the standard of care to just put patients with advanced disease on ADT monotherapy, but we need to be adding in additional agents for double therapy or triplet therapy even. Yeah, absolutely. And we all we often hear the the term or the phrase, you know, rapidly evolving landscape. And it's so true. I, it, there's so much happening, so many studies regularly coming out for different combinations of therapies, novel therapies for patients who have advanced prostate cancer. And as you're looking at this slide, you can see um, and think about how much has changed in this space in the last five to 10 years, looking particularly in the metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer space, so much happening there, which is really exciting and translates into better survival outcomes for our patients. I, I wanna focus in on the, the bucket right now for metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer, because I think that that really um, also has had some exciting developments. And when I'm thinking about treatment intensification, for, for me, that means um, triplet therapy or additional combination therapy. I understand that maybe for some that means just adding a novel hormonal agent, but let's focus, Dr. Morgans, on patients who have metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer and maybe um, candidates for intensification with triplet therapy. Absolutely. So this is going to be a group of patients who are chemo-fit. Um, so we have to make sure that they kind of meet that metric. And the way that I define that as an oncologist is they have to be up and able to move around awake for at least half of the day. 
We know in oncology that when patients are in increasingly frail, bedbound, sleeping for more than half of the day, they're actually um, more likely to be harmed by things like chemotherapy. And so we have to be really cautious. Uh, of course, that up and moving around is always dependent on whether or not they actually have that capability at, at baseline. But that's the general, general rule, awake, interactive, doing their thing for at least half of the day. So they have to be chemo fit. The data from, for treatment intensification, as, as you're talking about with triplets, comes from two studies. Uh, the PEACE-1 trial, which included de novo metastatic uh, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer patients, and the ARASENS trial. And PEACE-1 really looked at ADT, docetaxel for six cycles, and abiraterone versus ADT and docetaxel alone. PEACE-1 was actually much more complicated, but I'm just pulling out that piece of it to keep it simple. What they found in that comparison is that the addition of abiraterone to ADT and docetaxel improved overall survival, particularly among patients with high volume metastatic disease. And you defined high volume for us a little bit earlier. Aresens included patients with recurrent disease or de novo metastatic, although a majority had de novo metastatic. It included high volume and low volume patients, although a majority had high volume uh, disease. And it also included high risk and low risk patients. And these patients received ADT, docetaxel for six cycles and darolutamide or ADT and docetaxel alone. And what we saw here is the addition of darolutamide to ADT and docetaxel also improved overall survival and many secondary endpoints. And, and that was true for PEACE-1 as well. So when we're thinking about this, I'm usually thinking about a patient who's chemo fit for sure, motivated and comfortable with chemotherapy. And I feel like we can get most patients to that point. And I really prioritize people with de novo metastatic disease because that's gonna be a more aggressive phenotype as well as patients with high volume metastatic hormone sensitive disease. Again, more aggressive phenotype, we need multiple mechanisms of action to try to get that disease under control and really solidify the response. I would say though, for young healthy patients, patients who are interested in triplet therapy because they wanna be aggressive, it is not restricted only to patients with de novo metastatic disease or high volume disease. It is a blanket approval. You can have those conversations with patients and give triplet therapy to any patient that you think for whatever reason uh, has aggressive disease, is a motivated patient, wants to get chemo out of the way, whatever it is, um, you are able to use it in, in any of those patients with MHSPC. And while you are unmuting, I'm just going to comment um, that I, the, the reason I say that I think we can keep patients well in this is that patients actually had a maintenance of quality of life and in some cases an improvement of quality of life in certain domains by patient report on these studies. And, um, and really the toxicities are things like neuropathy, hair loss, um, sometimes nausea, loss of appetite. At risk of neutropenic fever, potentially need for blood transfusion, although that risk is low. I would say in general, docetaxel chemotherapy of all of our agents is well tolerated, well supported. We have strategies to dose reduce, to give growth factor, to keep patients safe. And I've had many patients actually continue working while getting chemotherapy. So this can be a tolerable treatment, um, has a bad name. Chemotherapy is scary, but it is something that we can get our patients through. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Um, so let's move on to our next segment. Did I unmute myself satisfactorily? <laughs> um, as we're considering these, um, all right, I just am trying to advance the slides here. Give me a second. Thank you. 
So as we're trying to um, consider the survival benefit here, we have to also consider the fact that there are treatment toxicities. And so while we're counseling our patients that, hey, this is going to result in an overall survival benefit for you, the obvious kind of follow-up and many questions ask, well, what does this mean for me? What, what, what is the treatment? How is the treatment going to make me feel? And so I'd like to just kind of move through some of the treatment-related toxicities and side effects. Meredith, if you could talk to us about the side effects of ADT, that would be great. Sure. Um, so when I'm starting men on ADT, you know, it's a long conversation covering all of these things. Um, typically, I'll start with highlighting fatigue and hot flashes. Um, that's what we hear most commonly, and that's what patients feel the most of all of these. Um, and I tell men that some men are pretty miserable and have significant hot flashes and fatigue. But some men are absolutely fine. They don't notice any side effects at all. But most men are somewhere in the middle where they experience these side effects, but it's tolerable and it's manageable and we can, can get them through it. So hot flashes, fatigue. I spend a good bit of time talking about um, loss of bone mineral density, increasing their risk of osteoporosis and, or osteopenia. Um, I talk... We get them started on calcium and vitamin D supplementation. We're monitoring bone density scans at baseline when they start hormone therapy. Um, and then we repeat that every two years. Um, I kind of lead the, the bone mineral density conversation again, starting calcium and vitamin D. And I really encourage patients to move um, regardless of what they're doing weight-bearing activity, non-weight-bearing activity, if it's walking to their mailbox, if it's working in their garden, I really encourage patients to move because that will, A, help their bone density loss. I find the more they move, the more it can help with their fatigue, and then also the weight gain, which is in turn due to a loss of uh, muscle, lean muscle mass. So that gets me to the weight gain covered conversation. Um, Certainly important to spend some time with the risk of cardiovascular disease. I'll kind of start that conversation and look at the patient's personal past history, past medical history with cardiovascular disease. So are they on blood pressure medication? Are they on diabetes medication? Have they had a heart attack, stent, cabbage? I look at their full cardiovascular history. And if they have a pretty significant history, then I'll either work to get them into our cardio-oncology colleagues, or if they're closely following with their own cardiologist, um, make sure they are closely seeing them and that the cardiologist is aware and on board with us starting the uh, hormone therapy. Great. And we'll talk towards the end about the multidisciplinary care that's so important for these patients. The, as we talk about other... Um, we can advance to the next slide, please. As we talk about other treatment-related toxicities, Dr. Morgans, I just, in the interest of time, want to highlight a couple of um, different medications that we use in their in their side effects. Um, so, since we're talking about treatment intensification and the addition of docetaxel and a novel hormonal therapy to ADT, Meredith just 
told us nicely about the ADT side effects. If you could just focus on the toxicity of chemotherapy and then kind of maybe highlight some of the um, toxicities of the novel hormonal agents we use, that would be nice. Thank you. Absolutely. So chemotherapy, and this would be docetaxel or cabazitaxel. And if we have small cell differentiation, this might include a platinum agent and a toposide. These are going to be agents that are given through IVs. So you do have to come into clinic typically once every three weeks. Um, and they do cause bone marrow suppression, um, just be inherent to the way that they act to really target rapidly dividing cells. And the side effects come from that. So rapidly dividing cells in the bone marrow causes those cells to die, causes blood counts to fall. Sometimes patients do need blood transfusions, or they may need something like Nulasta, which is a medication that's essentially GCSF in pegylated form that causes the, um, the white cells to mature a little bit faster and come out into circulation. So it causes about a day less of neutropenia. So it helps, helps for patients who are at high risk or who have had neutropenia in the past. Um, this is, I think, the most important or dangerous side effect that chemotherapy can cause. And, and of course, when we're suppressing um, the, the, the bone marrow, we know that low white blood cell counts puts patients in a situation where they are immunosuppressed and they are at risk for neutropenic fever or potentially even fatal neutropenic infection, um, which again is something that we see very rarely, but is, we, we do have to counsel patients. The other parts of the body that they attack are again, rapidly dividing cells. And, and what are those? Well, they're in the GI tract. And so that's why we often see things like mild nausea, usually for the taxanes that we use um, and sometimes low appetite. Um, we also see that they can cause damage to the longest nerves in the body. So that's why we see from the tips of the fingers and the tips of the toes, the development of neuropathy that spreads up from the fingers and up from the toes, um, the longer we give our chemotherapy, if we are not doing things like dose reductions or extending the time between those, those treatments. Um, we also see that patients do lose their hair and we can use cold caps actually to prevent hair loss. So if that's something really important to your patients, there are companies that will do that for them. It's not usually covered by insurance. They have to organize and coordinate it themselves, but that is out there as well. So these are the, the big side effects, the things that we think about, and we do counsel patients to be careful, particularly in the era of, era of COVID, not to get an infection and, and to call. If they have a temperature over 100.4, that could be a life-threatening um, infection. When we think about things like PARP inhibitors, we actually want to think about cytopenias too, because PARP inhibitors may be oral, so they're given at home, which is a little bit easier, but they also suppress the bone marrow. So they are also going to be a situation where you want to follow the, the blood counts and you have to do that on a regular basis, typically once a month. You may find yourself in a situation where you need to give a blood transfusion. Uh, neutropenia may be less of a problem, but that needs to be monitored as well um, so that patients can have dose interruption, dose reduction if they develop things like neutropenia or need recurrent um, uh, blood transfusions for, uh, for low red blood cells. We also do see thrombocytopenia with the PARP inhibitors. So again, we have to watch, make sure that we're not causing um, more extreme damage. But these are, these are the big things. PARP inhibitors also causing things like fatigue as this chemotherapy and some GI upset when, because of course we're taking an oral pill, it can cause GI stuff. Um, but I think with appropriate counseling for patients upfront to tell them this is what you might face and appropriate support as patients are going through these, we get patients through this. And, and certainly these are tolerable therapies when, um, when adjusted and tweaked to make sure that they're safe and effective. Great, thank you. Next slide, please. So let's move into talking 
to our, our patients. Um, we'll go back one slide here. Great. Um, so there, there's a lot of counseling that goes into talking to these patients with advanced prostate cancer because as we've been discussing, there are many therapies and these therapies come along with treatment-related toxicities. Patients with cancer obviously are concerned about prognosis. And as we're learning more and more about prostate cancer, there are um, new therapies that continue to be developed. And our understanding of things like genetic testing has um, have, have improved and changed. And so all of this is really an important part of, of patient counseling. So I'd like to jump actually right now to the topic of genetic testing. We heard a little bit about counseling for treatment and the side effects, but let's discuss who we're using genetic testing for and what the discussion looks like and what the considerations are. Meredith, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna call on you now. All right, um, so, and with the genetic counseling, um, we we do not on topic for this talk, but we do also offer that to men with um, high risk localized disease. So I do want to mention that that genetic um, genetic testing does play a role in the localized disease as well. Now, in our more advanced prostate cancer, per the per the NCCN guidelines, um, pretty much any gentleman with an advanced prostate cancer disease state uh, qualifies for genetic testing. So usually I will open up that conversation just with talking about it, explaining what it is. It can sound really scary at first and explaining why they uh, might qualify for it. And then explain to the patients that on one hand, um, the genetic count or the genetic testing could open up more treatment options for them with PARP inhibitors. And that's always encouraging to these men to hear. Um, and two, I also explain that it's important, just important information for them and their families, um, especially the men with the younger men um, with advanced prostate cancer. We can't forget about their colonoscopy screenings, about their um, skin checks. And if they have a germline mutation, um, they may be at risk, at higher risk for other malignancies as well, that we may need to make sure they are getting these screenings appropriately. And like I said, it's also important information for, for the patient's family. Um, as many as these germline mutations obviously pass through families and generations and can increase the risk of not just prostate, but also breast, ovarian, um, colon, pancreatic across the board. And I think uh, patients are always surprised to hear that if they do have a genetic mutation, it doesn't just mean prostate cancer. It does mean that their daughters need to know, that their sisters need to know. Um, so then we have that conversation with, with the patient and, and then we're doing point of care germline testing. So the patient is in clinic, we can draw the blood, we send it off, get the results back, and then if they do have a either pathogenic mutation or a um, VUS, a variant of uncertain significance, then we do get them into the, our genetic counselors. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important point because genetic testing, uh, especially to a urologist and maybe not to a medical oncologist, but feels like an overwhelming big 
discussion and are we well equipped to have that discussion? But I think actually the answer is, is yes, because the majority of the time, the test will be negative. But if you talk to patients about the potential outcomes of these tests and what you would do if a test does come back abnormal um, and let them know that at that point, there'll be some formal genetic counseling, um, that can kind of alleviate some of the stress around genetic testing, answer questions for the patients, get them potential therapies that may benefit them if necessary, if there is a mutation there. But I think that many, many providers don't feel uncomfortable with the topic and maybe don't feel like we're, we're equipped for that. But actually, you don't need a genetic counselor sitting in your clinic to successfully navigate genetic testing. So there's a, some like information that um, I think we all are, have access to that can be very beneficial for um, kind of laying the groundwork for genetic counseling and the genetic testing and the implications of that. Um, and then if additional counseling is needed, get a formal genetic counselor with expertise at that point. Um, so, and, and Dr. Morgans has provided some um, useful resources in the chat here for post-test counseling for patients who do have um, mutations. So it is actually something that's, that's very manageable and very important. So I'd like to move into our final segment here, and this is multidisciplinary shared care for our patients with advanced prostate cancer. And part of what I love about prostate cancer, and particularly advanced prostate cancer, is the opportunity to engage in multidisciplinary care to improve the outcomes of our patients. And there are so many team members, this is not at all an exhaustive list on this slide, so many team members who add benefit and expertise and can really make a difference in outcomes, whether it's quality of life outcomes or survival outcomes for our patients with advanced prostate cancer. And Alicia, I'm gonna, Dr. Morgans, I'm gonna call on you first to just kind of share some examples of common multidisciplinary care, you know, who you, who you have on speed dial to help you manage your patients with APC. Well, um, you know, most of the people on this slide are on, on my speed dial, and we already talked about genetic counseling, which um, certainly for patients with mutations is, is, is right up there on the list. But one group of, of practitioners that I engage with pretty often are the, the cardio-oncologists and cardiologists um, for, for, for folks who don't have a cardio-oncologist specifically. Uh, and th this is important, and there was a question in the chat about it, because, you know, we, we are really altering a patient's cardiometabolic profile or milieu when we're giving someone ADT and lowering their testosterone. We're causing cholesterol to go up as we've heard. We're causing um, sometimes blood pressure to go up when we're using different AR signaling inhibitors. We're, we're certainly increasing the risk of insulin insensitivity. And when we are really kind of pushing people closer to having cardiovascular events with something like ADT, if they already have a history of an MI or a stroke or heart failure, uh, this is going to be a group of patients that I 
probably want to collaborate with my cardiologist on to make sure that somebody is really making, getting them on an intensive statin uh, regimen, that they're making sure that their blood pressure is in a good place, particularly for patients with difficult control to control blood pressure. If they develop new diabetes, we've got to get them kind of hooked in with primary care. But cardio-oncology can be really important. It actually takes a lot of stress, I think, off of the urologist or off of the oncologist when we have these higher risk patients, because ADT can even increase the QT and interval. Like these are these are patients that if they're if they have cardiovascular complications, we want to get them into a cardiologist. But the other side of that coin is that primary care can also help us with all these cardiovascular risk factors if we have patients who aren't super high risk. And most men who are you know, meeting criteria for prostate cancer care um, have either a lifestyle um, sort of comorbidity that puts them at risk for cardiovascular disease or have an actual cardiovascular comorbidity. So at a minimum, they could use someone to watch their blood pressure, cholesterol, tell them to stop smoking, help them get on a healthy diet to lose some weight, um, and really kind of address those reversible cardiovascular risk factors when they can. So between cardio-oncology and primary care, I'm pulling on these team members a lot. And, and it's really around that competing risk of cardiovascular mortality that our patients face when they have prostate cancer. Thank you. And Meredith, who do you, who do you have on speed dial? Um, I got a lot of people on speed dial as well. Um, but I definitely want to highlight the pharmacists and this, in this circle. I, we lean on them so much and I know I recognize how lucky I am to have such a team of, of pharmacists that I work with, but from patient assistance or dealing with insurance or, they're talking to the patient sometimes more than I am um, because they are sending refills and they may say, hey, Mr. Smith said he's experiencing X, Y, Z, and they can relay that to us. Um, or if there's interactions we're worried about with other medications that patients are on, they, they handle all of that for us. So I cannot think, I can't thank them enough. Um, I think one more, um, practitioner that I would add to this list would be physical therapy that I don't think I utilize enough and I want to utilize more, but um, just back to keeping patients moving and healthy and whether it be um, physical therapy for just general, if they've had an injury and we need to get them in, um, but PT is also a, a big one I would add here. Great. You made me think too of pelvic floor physical therapy, especially for those patients who have progressed through therapy with surgery or prior radiation. Um, many of those patients have um, side effects related to that and having a pelvic floor physical therapist is absolutely key for quality of life in those patients. So between the radiation oncologists, urologists, the medical oncologists, of course, the primary care doctors, pharmacy, cardio-oncologists, and I'll just add one more, um, palliative care. I mean, we think of that as, as end of life, but it's, it's not always about end of life, and it can be getting patients through difficult times in symptom management, helping with bone pain, for instance, or, you know, helping with appetite or any of the many things that can really um, come along with these advanced therapies that we're using for patients to prolong overall survival. So really um, a, a multidisciplinary approach and so beneficial for our patients. Well, I want to thank everyone for, for joining. 
and really um, appreciate the um, the panelists tonight, Dr. Morgans and Meredith Donahue. Thank you so much for your expertise, and uh, please do fill out an evaluation so we can help the AUA with additional content going forwards. Thank you. Thanks. Good night. Good night.